There's a great deal of talk about Orwell 1984 and mechanical men, and perhaps we'll all become machines, and, and we feel kind of low at time. What's going to happen? All of a sudden, something explodes, and something in the person of two young investigative reporters, Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward, and the book, as you know, is All the President's Men, and they broke the Watergate case. And it occurs to me that this book is one of several dimensions. It's a suspense book. It's great police reporting. It's two young crime reporters, you might say, investigating a gang of thieves. It could be that, the mafia, the syndicate, as it's done. It also is a re how a newspaper works, and it involves the, what was happening in the office of the Washington Post with the two reporters, Bernstein Woodward and the editors and the associate editors. And also involves the relationship with the two guys themselves, but involves more than that to me. It involves uh, flesh and blood guys who are excellent journalists against what seems to be a machine. So when did the case break? Uh, you first heard about the case in uh, 1972, Bob, was it? Well, the first I became acquainted with the Watergate burglary was early in the morning after the five men had been arrested there when the city editor called me. Mm. And said come in and the the real feeling that the story was going to be something was uh, when James McCord in the courtroom yeah. whispered CIA. CIA and then there was Carl Bernstein you and he had never worked together before you two were metropolitan reporters and not national Correct. reporters and then both of you came to work on it but at that time now here's a voice he's a professor of communications God help us that's what he is <laughs> and he's telling about how good Nixon is in handling people, in stifling people. We both hear this voice of this professor. At the time, you, had, you two guys had just got on to something. This is right after yeah. the, the major period of the disclosures that yeah. were in the, in the Washington Post. So here's Post. the voice. I think, from what little I can find out, from people who have studied Nixon in our field, strictly on an academic basis, mm -hmm. you know, reporting, reporting what we know to somebody else who we know, mm -hmm. rather than to the public, mm -hmm. uh, Nixon uses his people wisely and gets the information, whether he wants to hear it or not, that will help him. And that he will avoid certain kinds of behavior and be attracted to certain kinds of messages, certain kinds of themes. I think in the last four years, the Nixon administration has so carefully softened the power of the press that uh, the press has taken more lightly than ever before in its existence in my mind. Mm -hmm. uh, that's, I think, why the Watergate affair was so mm -hmm. delicately brushed mm -hmm. aside by the American people. Now, as we listen to the voice of Professor, I call him Jack Hunter, you both we read parts of the book. Uh, the book is written sort of third person, isn't it? Ernst third Stein. person. Yeah. And suppose Woodward tells about Bernstein's revelation when he first came to it, and Bernstein, you, Carl, tell about Woodward's. So the book really is a, a, a story of the newspaper business and reporting, and it, it starts out that first day in June 1772 and tracks us in the Washington Post through the story as we learn a more incredible piece of the puzzle and write stories for the paper. One of the most interesting parts, uh, perhaps, in the book is uh, section that in a sense deals with the press on how the White House is responding, how they are, are stonewalling us. And besides not responding to stories, they're, they're denouncing the Washington Post and saying we're printing hearsay, character assassination, and innuendo. And at this point in the book on page 105, we've just involved John Mitchell in the story and received what we call a non-denial 
denial from the White House, namely a, a, an attack on the newspaper, really, and a denial that it, sort of it's true, but really not speaking to the issue. So Carl decided to call John Mitchell at his home in New York. Do you want to lead in with anything on that, Carl? Only that, that it was perhaps the most important story up until that point. It said that John Mitchell, the former Attorney General of the United States, that while he was the nation's top law enforcement officer, had controlled the secret funds that, that funded the Watergate operation and other undercover activities. And these are from Carl's notes as he uh, wrote them that night after the conversation. Got Mitchell on the phone, he answered, Mitchell, yes. Bernstein, after identifying himself. Sir, I'm sorry to bother you at this hour, but we are running a story in tomorrow's paper that in, a, in effect says you controlled secret funds at the Committee for the Re-election of the President while you were Attorney General. Mitchell, gee, you said that? What does it say? Bernstein, I'll read you the first few paragraphs. Uh, he got about as far as the third, and Mitchell responded again, geez after every few words. Then Mitchell said, all that crap, you're putting it in the paper, it's all been denied. Katie Graham, referring to the publisher of the Washington Post, Katie Graham's gonna get her tit caught in a big fat ringer if that's published. Good Christ, that's the most sickening thing I've ever heard. Bernstein, who, by the way, I, I might add, is not used to talking to the former chief law enforcement officer of the United States. Bernstein said, Sir, I'd like to ask you a few questions about Mitchell interrupts. What time is it? Bernstein, 11.30. I'm sorry to call so late. Mitchell, 11.30. 11.30 when? Bernstein, 11.30 at night. Mitchell, oh. Bernstein, the committee has issued a statement about the story, but I'd like to ask you a few questions about the specifics of what the story contains. Mitchell, did the committee tell you to go ahead and publish that story? You fellows got a great ball game going. As soon as you're through paying Ed Williams, a reference to the attorney for the Washington Post, and the rest of those fellows, you we're going to do a story on all of you. Bernstein, sir, about the story. Mitchell, call my law office in the morning. And then Mitchell hung up. You know, what's so interesting yeah. about that conversation is, in retrospect, uh, is that that occurred on September the 29th. And of course the White House transcripts show the President uh, and Dean talking on September 15th uh, in very much the same terms and specifically mm -hmm. taking action involving Ed Bennett Williams uh, who's referred to uh, in that discussion as that, that son of a bitch Williams. What interests me also, by the way, is both of you, the acuteness of both of you in picking up uh, revelations unintentional apart. Now, Mit Mitchell obviously was astonished, wasn't he, when you, Carl Bernstein, called him. That, that, that it broke, isn't that well, it? Well, I, I yeah. think that his reaction, uh, we describe it in the book somewhat, is, is almost that Jesus is being some kind of primal scream. We yeah. had done, we had said the words out loud that the grand jury hadn't said, even though it might have had some of the yeah. same information. When he said uh, that Jesus, I, I think we thought it was a prayer. Yeah. But, uh, uh, but he was obviously in some kind of excruciating pain, knowing that, that finally somebody had in, had in essence said the former attorney general has broken the law. That's why we had that mechanical sounding voice in the beginning of the guy who says, everything's set, nothing the press can do. So, but The reaction to, was rather, yeah. rather consistent. Yeah. The, the other passage that, that you pointed out yourself here, uh, discussion between Bob and a source known as Deep Throat, who was perhaps the most sensitive 
source that we had. He occupied a high sensitive position in the executive branch of the federal government. Uh, the passage begins, Woodward nodded. How'd the Post like its subpoenas, Deep Throat asked. Just great, said Woodward. That's only the first step. Our president has gone on a rampage about news leaks on Watergate. He's told the appropriate people, go to any length to stop them. When he says that, he really means business, internal investigations, plus he wants to use the courts. There was a discussion about whether to go the criminal route or the civil suit route first. At a meeting, Nixon said that the money left over from the campaign, about $5 million or so, might as well be used to take the Washington Post down a notch, thus your subpoenas and the others. Part of the discussion was about starting a grand jury investigation, but that's for later. Nixon was wild, shouting and hollering that we can't have it and we've got to stop it. I don't care how much it costs. His theory is that the news media have gone way too far and the trend has to be stopped, almost like he was talking about federal spending. He's fixed on the subject and doesn't care how much time it takes. He wants it done. To him, the question is no less than the very integrity of government and basic loyalty. He thinks the press is out to get him and therefore is disloyal. People who talk to the press are even worse. The enemies within or something like that. Yeah, isn't it funny? As you're talking, uh, both of you, the press and the reputation it has, credibility, the overused word, and what you did to suddenly make something else incredible, unbelievable, and that's those who put down the press. The yeah. point that you, that the professor who we just heard yeah. on tape made is a very valid one. Yeah. This administration was singularly successful in undermining the credibility of the press. I think you can trace it back perhaps as far as when Vice President Agnew, then Vice President, uh, made a speech in Des Moines, Iowa, in which he yeah. called on the press to use its uh, powers of investigation for the purposes of some self-examination. A uh, statement which I think Bob and I agree with, but perhaps for different reasons. See, which is what I find more astonishing, Adam. Carl and Bob, about your book, which I find a very important book, is that the press was never really that great. You and I have Stone know it. You know, it was never really that great. I'm talking about the White House correspondence. You have marvelous, a very pertinent footnote here somewhere that quoting John Osborne, how the how the press is snowed by the presidency and certainly snowed by Kissinger. Well, in in the Mitchell conversation that that Carl had. Uh, it, it, where Mitchell says at that point, did the yeah. committee tell you to go ahead and publish yeah. that? It's almost as if they have the yeah. power to say, yeah. okay, that can go in the paper and that yeah. can go in the paper. Yeah. And I, I guess the point of the, of, of the book really is, because it is that, that story of journalism, that you have to sort of go toe-to-toe -to -toe yeah. with these people. You have to say, our sources say yeah. this, we have the following information, and you can deny it, you can threaten the publisher with having a, a portion of her anatomy going through the ringer, but yeah. nonetheless, you put it in the paper. Now we come to how you two worked and the obstacles you faced, and you have a little dedication to, it's called All the President's Men, Simon and Schuster, the publishers, but you dedicate to those, not all, some of them had the courage and to, to tell you things. Now we come to the big uh, wall you had to scale, the fear of people, the incredible fear of those revealing. Isn't, wasn't that the big one? Interestingly enough, it was, even though we weren't getting much information when we first encountered this fear, uh, it told us something that we didn't know, and that was that the stakes of Watergate were much higher than we ever perceived. This was in August and September of 72. The White House and the Committee for the Re-election of the President were still vehemently denying any connection whatsoever with Watergate. Uh, and we went around and started visiting the homes of of low-level White House and Committee for the Re-election of 
the president employees. And doors were slammed in our faces, but very often before the doors were slammed, someone would say something like, uh, you can't be seen here. They follow me. Uh, I'm afraid they've got my phone tapped. Uh, there are terrible things going on, but I can't talk about them. And that fear told us something that we, that we really didn't perceive until then. Now these were people, uh, a woman you call the bookkeeper, uh, different ones come to Hugh Sloan, the most sympathetic of the people. But you, know, you had to get your foot in the door, didn't you? I, I subtitled the book, Foot in the Door, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> well, well yeah. one of the I interesting scenes in there is where Carl learns that there is this bookkeeper who may know something, somebody who worked for Marie Stans may know something about all this loose cash that seemed to be floating around, because we had uh, just done a story about $25,000 campaign check that went in the bank account of one of these burglars, and that was really the first major story that, that made it clear to us that there was something here. And when Carl went to the, the bookkeeper's house, uh, the Carl identified himself and the bookkeeper said, oh no, you've got to go away, you can't be here, and gave the standard routine. And in order to get a foot in the door, Carl saw a pack of cigarettes, I guess, laying on yeah. the table and said, can I have a cigarette? Yeah. And then she, being a kind person, said, yeah. okay, yeah. here's a cigarette. And then uh, the Cup bookkeeper had her sister there, I believe. Coffee. And the sister said, well, you know, well, would you like some coffee? Yeah. And Carl said, yes, indeed. And then but yeah. drank one of the slowest yeah. cups of coffee in, in the yeah. history of coffee drinking. <laughs> What's the question? Isn't it now, you're talking also about people, now some of the people doing this work, we're, talk, we're talking about a mechanical situation, are basically decent people like this bookkeeper caught, isn't that it? Very much so. Yeah. Uh, certainly there were a lot of fine people who worked for the Committee for the Re-election of the President, who still work in the White House, uh, and, and the bookkeeper was one of them. Uh, there's a very interesting part, again, in the White House transcripts. It's very interesting how the transcripts have illuminated kind of parts of the book, uh, where John Dean and the President are talking, and, and John Dean starts to talk about this little pocket of secretaries in, uh, in the office of Maurice Stans and what a potential problem they are. Uh, well, we were fortunate enough, in the case of the bookkeeper and some other people, to, to get into that pocket. And it was there that, that we started to learn about the money. Uh, and the, the money told us that, yes, there had been a secret fund that financed these activities. And, and that put us on to who controlled the secret fund, which has really put us on to, to Hugh Sloan, who probably takes up 70 or 80 pages yeah. in the book. And For the first time his name is revealed in this book, that he was your source, aside from... A source, right. A source, aside One from Deep Throat. One of many, many yes, sources, but a, a key source. And again, the process is, and I think probably for people who don't know much about newspaper reporting, it, it's revealing that these unnamed sources uh, are not people who are the classic leakers who want to come in and say, here's the whole story, but people who are in privileged positions, caught with divided loyalties, and you prevail upon them. As Carl has said, we sort of felt like vultures going out to Sloan's house the, the dozen or more times we did, because he was always so reluctant, but you could get in and, and have a cup of coffee, and then he'd maybe tell you And once And once you have one piece of information, you can use it to pry loose yeah. another piece of information. That's really, I think, the key yeah. to, to this kind of reporting, and it's a step-by-step, -step yeah. slow, excruciating extraction process. I think it should be pointed out. It's quite obvious that uh, what Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward did is very tough, investigative, uh, sloughing through the mud in every, mud in every sense, you know, uh, work. The real and point is it's yeah. not about leaks, and, no. and I think we're hearing a lot too much yeah. about leaks no. now. 
You guys connected seemingly disconnected events, and suddenly it all came to right. pass. It, it, and, and that's what really made Watergate more than just a burglary at right. the Democratic headquarters, and it was that connecting of events that we were able to do through the information we got from our sources that made it clear that secret operations in the White House were were the order of the yeah. day, really, and that the Segretti Dirty Tricks yeah. operation was related to Watergate. Uh, what what yeah. happened uh, is really a funny kind of thing. That We didn't get many anonymous tips uh, from people calling in yeah. that we didn't know, but one night a gentleman called me who said he was an attorney for the government, uh, no connection with any of the Watergate matters, and he said he had heard this rather crazy story uh, from a friend who was approached by a friend to do some work for the Nixon campaign in a rather unusual way, which is to say to go around and sabotage the Democratic primaries. And he gave me the name of his friend, a gentleman named Alex Shipley, who was an assistant attorney general in the Tennessee. state of Tennessee. And I got hold of Shipley, and he proceeded to tell me this rather bizarre story about the travels of Donald Segretti, a young California lawyer who had just gotten out of the Army uh, and who had attempted to recruit Shipley and others to conduct uh, some rather vicious uh, political sabotage and espionage during those primaries. And it suddenly, to us, started to make some sense out of Watergate. At this time, Watergate was an isolated incident. Nobody could really understand why Watergate on June the 17th when the president's reelection seemed all but assured. But if it was part of something larger, it made sense. And in the course of a routine conversation with a, a government uh, official who was concerned with the case, a government attorney, uh, I just sort of threw out the name Donald Segretti and expecting to get no response. And the government attorney went into a rampage. He was just furious he and, found out uh, something. and said that, that if you could find out about that kind of conduct uh, and about Segretti's operation, it would really tell you something that, that would stagger you. Yeah, I'm thinking, just let's stick with the Segretti thing, because to me, the book has so many dimensions. You talk about Segretti and the group of guys who were at the University of uh, Southern California, right. and they were doing little tricks, you know, but suddenly become big tricks. And the kiddie core of young, he hired young kids, right, to penetrate the Quakers, to be agent provocateurs, right? And you ask one of the kids about, how do you feel about ethics, you know? What do you mean ethics? No, see, to me, this is very important, too, in your book. That's a new kind of something in our society. Maybe it's always been, but this horrendous amorality. That's what, also what you find out, isn't it? There certainly was a, a good deal of amorality, I think, in the way this campaign was conducted. I'm talking about the, the using of young people, too. That, that, that was one of the most outrageous things, really, and it, and it obviously to the to the young people who were approached to do this, somebody called it sandbox politics, really. That it was it was sort of kids stuff, and it, some of it seemed just to be pranks. But then you really looked into it, and some of it was e well, extremely the committee vicious. Committee for the election of the president went so far as to attempt to fix mock elections in high schools. Mm. This is the point. It's almost a burlesque in a way. It's almost like a musical comedy well, if, if we weren't if that weren't close. So tragic. If we weren't that, if we weren't so close to a police state. Now, what would have happened? This is a conjecture. Just 
What would have happened if you guys didn't break it? I'm curious. And Watergate, as our friend in the beginning said, was buried. You know. Well, it was it was a process of interaction between the press and the, the numerous government investigations, and it's a very iffy question. Uh, we did some of the stories, but uh, Time Magazine, the yeah. New York Times, others yeah. did a lot, and it really brought Watergate to the pitch, and particularly in the Segretti activities, which the Justice Department refused to investigate, that led uh, Senator Irvin, and there's described an interview I had with Senator Irvin ab about this before he set up his committee who said, now this is something we've got to look at. What, who is tampering with the political process? And then he set up his investigation and then uh, led to the events uh, forming the special prosecutor and the, and the yeah. impeachment proceedings. So it was always not only evolutionary from the point of view of the evidence yeah. we gained, but who was the yeah. investigative agency yeah. or yeah. agent. Yeah. Another we thing that, that I think had a lot to do with this was that the stakes were raised uh, perhaps to a point of no return by, by the White House deciding that it would make the, the conduct of the press the issue rather than the conduct yeah. of the President's men. Uh, by attacking us, attacking the Washington Post in particular in the manner uh, and intensity that the White House did, yeah. uh, it, it made this an irredeemable game, as it were. That, uh, if one side turned out turned out to be wrong, that side its credibility was going to going to be, if not destroyed, certainly impaired tremendously. You, you know, there's also by the in your book, as book throughout, there's this question of the investigations of of Bernstein and Woodward uh, that's now celebrated and known, and it should be I hope you know even more known that there was a human aspect here. You yourself had ethical problems too. We come to that, don't you? Well, oh yes, indeed we. W went into a period after we had made a, an error on the H.R. Haldeman story, which was an error in attribution, saying somebody had testified before the grand jury that Haldeman controlled this, this secret fund. In fact, he had controlled it, and uh, as his indictment uh, suggests, there's some serious allegations against him. Nonetheless, we had uh, said that somebody had so testified, and they had not, and the White House was able to attack that story. Uh, quite effectively, and then the yeah, that was a critical moment for you guys. Yeah, it's probably yeah. the worst moment yeah. we ever had. Because then the question is, are you guys going to be tossed in the can for one thing? Like we we considered resigning, case, yeah. as a matter of yeah. fact, uh, because it, it was, uh, yeah. although the substance of the report was accurate. Uh, the stories had been building. Uh, we had a pretty much airtight track record, and then all of a sudden, yeah. it was as if, as if the yeah. ground had been yeah. cut from under us. And in this, in the the desperation of that day, when we it became quite clear to us that we had made this mistake in attribution, we went around to check with the sources of information. One of them being an FBI agent, and he wouldn't talk to us about it. And we felt. Uh, both responsible and desperate to, to find out how we had made this mistake, and so we went and told the agent's boss yeah. that the agent had talked to us, and this, in a sense, was really blowing a yeah. source. Uh, the man did not get in trouble, thank heavens, but it's something that, Absolutely unforgivable. I mean, I, I think it's something we would never do again. I'm thinking even deeper than that, and that's Carl, and to get the records from the telephone company, I'm thinking of. There again, now, I realize the situation, this is something we're faced at a certain moment. <laughs> well, what's history. so interesting is, yeah. to me, that is that, that we were confronted with ethical problems yeah. not unlike people at the White House very Tell them about the that world. telephone. The telephone uh, and what it was for. And, important. and very early, uh, this was in July, uh, only a month or six weeks after uh, the break-in, 
uh, I attempted to to get some telephone records uh, of Bernard Barker. One of the uh, Watergate uh, burglars. As well as some credit card records. Uh, in fact, I also used credit card records on Segretti. Uh, and in both instances, I was able to get the records. And I kept wondering to myself, if this was, you know, if they were records on me, I'd be outraged if I knew a reporter had been able to go to AT&T or to go to a major credit card company and get this information, which is supposedly confidential. And it gets into a whole question of when do the, the ends justify the means, which, of course, is, has a lot to do with Watergate and the whole mentality yeah. behind it. And we were constantly faced with, with that same kind of question. Yeah. What a hell of and we don't know yeah. the answers. Yeah. But yet you had to. If you didn't get those records of Barker or those Segretti expenditures, whatever, you wouldn't have been able to go follow through. Yeah. That's right. And the, and the main uh, example was visiting grand jurors, which yeah. in the desperation yeah. after the Haldeman error, uh, as Ben Bradley, the editor at the Post, said he was going to hold our, our heads in a pail of water yeah. until we came up with a story. And in, in that desperation, we went around and talked to grand jurors, uh, something that is not illegal, but certainly something uh, highly questionable, getting into that secret process. We'll come to a, a humorous moment in that, too. Fortunately, we got no information yeah. whatsoever from the grand jurors, which well, would have compounded the problem uh, if we had. And then Sarika, oh, this is a very funny scene there. Perhaps, and perhaps wasn't we funny if you were there. Yeah, it wasn't funny. <laughs> a slight break, though. Before we take a slight break, the idea of Sarika had found out he was bawling out a couple of correspondents. A lot of journalists were there, right? That's right. And he was boarding out, and uh, they didn't know it was you guys. Did you they? wanted to, us to tell that now yeah. or later? Well, tell that now, and then we'll take a slight pause. Oh, okay. It was a situation where some of the people that we approached, one or more, went to the prosecutors and said these reporters are coming around asking us to break our oath, and prosecutors went to Judge Sirica, who was outraged, and uh, told our lawyer that we'd better be down in the courtroom uh, a couple of 19th. days before Christmas. We went down there. Uh, I got a haircut, and we put on our nicest suits, and we figured we were headed for for jail or at least a, a public unveiling that uh, we were not looking forward to. Judge Sirica came out and said a member of the news media had approached the grand jurors and, and issued a lecture and commended the grand jurors not for talking and then left the courtroom and did not name us, and there were about 30 correspondents there. And there was this kind of mad rush to the hallways. Uh, in which the, the various reporters start asking each other whom they suspected yeah. and was it you, was it you, and, and we, in effect, uh, engaged in our own cover-up. Uh, you guys, who, me? How right. dare you? That's right, we right. sounded we like evaded, the worst we mis in the White misrepresented, uh, here's Dodge the, ran here's for the, the elevators. Crazy, but at the same time, a guy named Lawrence, John Lawrence, L.A. Times, was protecting a source, you know, in the tradition of free press, he gets put in the pokey. That's right. That's correct. That same day by the same judge. Yeah. yeah. And I remember coming back from that hearing just totally I've never totally seen Woodward split. so shaken. Yeah. yeah. Burnt and rarely seen Woodward so shaken. They're both painfully aware of the contrast. So a slight pause here uh, as we're talking to uh, Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward in the book is All the President's Men that Simon and Chester have published. And you can see it's more than a suspense story of uh, the work of two investigative journalists, but it's about our society, too, and where to, what next, and, and what have we learned from Watergate, but more of this uh, and their techniques in a moment after this pause. Resuming the conversation with, with Carl Bernstein, Bob Woodward, and all the president's men, talking about how you got things on the telephone, 
People tell you things, a phrase, and so they mean to, like Judge Roby, early in the case, as a federal judge. Judge Ritchie. Ritchie, I'm sorry. And what, this is, to me, fantastic. He he told you something. You He called you, didn't he? Correct. And this is what? He said the stuff, this is during the campaign. Election this is held. while the Democrats' civil yeah. suit was being uh, argued. The Democrats had filed yeah. a civil suit against the Committee for the Re-Election of the President stemming from the break-in. And the purpose of the suit was really not so much to win money damages as to get disclosure through calling in officials of the committee to take their depositions. And inexplicably, uh, Judge Ritchie, on August the 22nd, 1972... He was the judge hearing the case. Mm-hmm. Right. Judge Ritchie reversed a decision that he himself had made a week earlier and ordered all the depositions sealed and that no further testimony be taken until after the criminal proceedings uh, had finished, which in effect meant that there would be no disclosure under oath before the election. And then later that day, he called me, and I had never talked to the judge in my life, and he said, I just wanted you to know that uh, the reason for this was to protect everybody's civil rights and liberties, and it had absolutely nothing to do with any ex parte communication. You never uh, asked this, did you? I never asked. It was like a bolt out of the blue. Right. The idea that any would, have, would approach a federal judge to me was, was un- of course unthinkable. You, of course, this, this question is left hanging, isn't it? Uh, was uh, Well, there were allegations, uh, John Dean's testimony, uh-huh. that a lawyer named Romer McPhee in Washington had acted sort of as go-between the yeah. committee for the re-election yeah. of the president and the judge. Uh, the allegations have been denied and there's really been no resolution of that. Well, John Mitchell testified that indeed there had been I think almost a dozen meetings although John Mitchell said that the purpose of the meetings was perfectly proper. You talk about a tangled scheme that you guys are untangling but how, how, how uh, profound it is and horrendous, you know. Then the news, I'm thinking about you, how you guys work, so uh, some guy leaked something, the name Ehrlichman came in on page 237 here. Some guy's talking to you on the phone. And That's suddenly, <laughs> Woodward snapped a pencil and half in his fingers. Er, the guy dropped the name. You didn't expect him to drop. That's right. Um, and Ehrlichman uh, really had the reputation as the program man in the White House. Uh, very human person, not rigid like Haldeman was, supposedly. And for someone to bring Ehrlichman in again and to suggest that his name might come out at the Watergate trial was rather astonishing. Uh, Deep Throat had earlier told me, in fact, that Ehrlichman had ordered Howard Hunt out of the country and sort of with this this excess of caution, uh, I really shouldn't call it an excess, I think it was appropriate, but we, we kept things out of the paper until we could, we were absolutely sure, and this is something Carl would try to get in a story or two. and Woodward would keep yeah. keep killing it. We had a rule that we wouldn't put anything in the yeah. paper uh, involving improper activity or allegations unless it was confirmed by two independent sources, uh, meaning really from different ends of the spectrum, which is to say if somebody in the Committee for the Re-Election of the President told us that John Mitchell controlled some fund, we'd have to have that information either from uh, someone in the FBI or in the Justice Department uh, or someone in the White House with first-hand knowledge of it just so we could nail all the corners down and know yeah. that we were perfectly yeah. safe. And some marvelous moments here of humor, too. You two guys is <laughs> fighting near the water cooler. That's also part. Now, I'm curious, did the guys on the city desk, we'll come to the question of you guys being local report. the guys around the all know you're working on this and they kept it pretty well? We the, kept yeah. the information as closely held in the office as yeah. we could. Once it reached the point where we saw that it, that it was going in unprecedented directions, uh, I remember 
the day probably of the most important story, the, the October 10th story, which said that Watergate was just a small part of a massive campaign of political espionage and sabotage. Gradually, the word started to go through the newsroom that there was a package of stories that was coming that was going to sort of go like a rocket through the White House, and there were editors coming around and peering over everyone's shoulder. The, the, the role of the editors in, the, in this story is very interesting, yeah. and really, after the sources and, and after uh, ourselves in the book, the, the main characters this is Bradley are and Simons and Sussman. That's right. Mm -hmm. uh, Harry Rosenfeld, the mm -hmm. Metropolitan Editor. We had four editors. Mm -hmm. First, uh, we were assigned to the local desk and still are, in fact. The immediate editor, a uh, fellow named Barry Sussman, uh, who was really sort of the conceptual editor, worked with us very, very hard on these these stories and would, would always ask the question, okay, you've written this story, now where does it go? Who do you need to talk to? How does this fit in? Then immediately above him is the metropolitan editor of the Post, Harry Rosenfeld, who's really sort of somebody out of uh, front page. He yeah. runs around the newsroom screaming and yelling, very demanding, insistent, man, but at the same time probably the supreme expert on reading a story and seeing a hole in it. Then after him is Howard Simons, the managing editor, a uh, meticulous form, former science reporter who uh, sort of acts as a break, a very, very cautious person. Uh, tell us a lot. When in doubt, leave it out. Mm -hmm. yeah, that really was the, was the rule. Yeah. And then B Ben Bradley, the executive editor, uh, very sophisticated old-timer who's been around uh, Washington and the journalism profession for about 25. Actually now we come to something else here, little conflicts and two different approaches. Uh, Bradley uh, is very much like Bob Woodring, he wants hard fact, you want hard fact, right? Whereas you, Carl, were working on Hunch's intuitive stuff, is that it? Isn't yeah, that the idea? I, I was, like to deal in deduction and, yeah. and to sort of get an idea where I'm going next and follow that direction. Right. Bob uh, much prefers hard information, he's impatient with theories, uh, Bradley's the same way. But what's so interesting is that within the Washington Post that you had both reporters and editors whose skills kind of complemented uh, each other and who served as breaks on each other. But the 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 buck really did stop with Bradley. Yeah. He was, the, as the number one editor, the person who had to sit in there each night and read over yeah. the story, interrogate us, somewhat like a prosecutor, yeah. in fact, saying, where'd you get yeah. that? What yeah. What'd they say? Because he had his fingers burned once, didn't he, when he was in Newsweek, see? That's it, and he wanted to make sure you guys got it, and that's how he... Bill Actually, Moyers, that was another, that that was another sort of incident. Uh, it, it was when we learned that uh, Dean and Haldeman were going to have to resign from the White House staff, and we learned this about two weeks before it happened, and we were thinking of writing the story, and Bradley recalled when he had, working for Newsweek, written a story uh, that uh, J. Edgar Hoover was going to resign and going to be replaced. But he got it, he got it from he LBJ's got, press. He, he got, got the story it from Bill from Moyers, Moyers who was Johnson's press yeah. secretary. Yeah. Uh, and Bradley went ahead and wrote the story, put it in Newsweek, yeah. uh, and Mr. Hoover apparently was very successful in resisting, and the next thing that Bradley knew, uh, Lyndon Johnson told Bill Moyers, well... No, Johnson held a press conference and appointed right. Hoover FBI director for life, and as he yeah. walked out, uh, he learned, leaned over to Moyers and said, you call up Ben Bradley and tell him expletive deleted you. <laughs> <laughs> you just got him to By the way, let's stick, with, let's stick with the FBI for a moment in Hoover. Is it the role of the FBI 
of the flax said Roy. Oh, Hoover, by the way, threatened to expose the taps, didn't he, if he were forced to resign? There's an so allegation to that effect. The, the yeah. 17 wiretaps on government officials and news reporters. But coming back to the FBI, you, you guys were also impelling something to happen. Now, somewhere along the line, this stuff wasn't really coming out as much as it should be, should it? In what sense? That was the FBI doing its job, you know? Well, certainly we would call people and find out that they hadn't been interviewed by the FBI. A good I example, mean, yeah. uh, Jeb Magruder's secretary had never been interviewed by the FBI. Robert Reisner, uh, Magruder's principal assistant, uh, who we now know was the person who, who took the, the gemstone file, the actual wiretap file, uh, the weekend of the break-in. It was in his possession for a while. Magruder asked him to take it out of his desk. The FBI had never talked to him. We would yeah. go through address books yeah. that were introduced in evidence at the trial and call the telephone numbers. And then people would answer the phone and say, oh, the first I ever heard about it, never heard yeah. from the FBI. And also the prosecutors, Silbert and those guys weren't really doing a job, you point out here. Uh, some guys were telling well, you that. Well, it's, now that's one of the most complicated yeah. things to unravel, the role of the prosecutors in this case. They, they did a lot of things right, but I think there was a, either a certain timidity or naivete almost and not understanding the, the lines of authority in the White they House. They were manipulated uh, also. I think, you know, again, the White House transcript show that. I think no one has questioned the integrity of, of the three prosecutors. Uh, I think they're men of unquestioned integrity. But interestingly enough, I think that, that where we perhaps were, were a little bit more successful than the prosecutors was in understanding uh, the atmosphere of the White House, the lines of authority there, and the same in the Committee for the Re-election of the President. Uh, Deep Throat, at one point in the book, refers to it as the siege mentality. And had the prosecutors been much more aware uh, of that mentality than they were and the lines of authority, I think perhaps that, that they wouldn't have been manipulated quite so readily. You're talking about siege mentality, deep throat. Now we come, that now the stakes are getting higher and higher as you guys are putting it together more and more. And now the fear is getting. And when the name Haldeman came into play, that's when it it underwent almost a quality yeah, Everyone change, ducked for cover because yeah. he, as the president's number one yeah. assistant, ran uh, the White House with an iron hand. And that is one of the things that, that we learned, and, and it became quite clear to us that there was very little that went on in the White House that Haldeman didn't either approve or authorize or know about. And this is one of the reasons for the, if, if you have to fault the federal investigation, it was the unwillingness to investigate the Segretti activities, as you may recall. Uh, Segretti, one of his contacts was Dwight Chapin, the president's appointment secretary. He was paid by Herbert Kalmbach, the president's personal attorney. Now, these are very, very high people, but they wouldn't look at, at that. They interviewed the people, and then they stopped. And they the, knew in that case. For instance, there's a conversation uh, in the book where I speak with a, a government attorney who's obviously concerned with a case, uh, and I use the, the old USC term for the type of political espionage and sabotage that was conducted. Uh, the term was... And uh, I mentioned the word to this government attorney, uh, and he says, he says, you can go right to the top on that one. He says, and I say, you mean Mitchell? And he says, higher than Mitchell even, all the way to the top. But they, uh, Kleindienst quite, quite with a great deal of pride at this point, came out and said, we're not invest investigating that stuff. That's dirty tricks. Political and, pranks. And, and it's now clear, Segretti pleaded 
guilty to, to violating the law in a number of cases on this. And I mean, some of it was, was vicious, vicious yeah. material, putting out yeah. those letters. Right. And Segretti instance. had been hired uh, by Dwight Chapman, the president's appointment secretary, and with uh, the approval of Haldeman, as yeah. Mr. Haldeman yeah. later acknowledged. about pranks. Remember when that case first broke? You guys are working on it now. We didn't know you guys are that deep in it. The word caper was used, and the word caper has a light quality to it, almost a musical comedy quality, a uh, Lavender Hill mob quality, doesn't it? That's not really serious. Cont I was very impressed with that in a negative way, the fact that the word caper was always Actually, not Actually, that's serious. a term developed by Jack Anderson, the investigative yeah, reporter, yeah. and he quickly disposed of it. And yeah. in, in a sense, you look at it, five of these yeah. guys... Uh, it seemed like a caper at first. It wasn't until after August 1st yeah. and then after October 10th that you really began to understand yeah. the dimensions the, of this the, the August 1st being the story about the $25,000 campaign contribution. Now, what he adds up to is the destruction of the whole electoral process. Exactly. Well, victim of everything. See. Potentially. Yeah. But there's something else here that's funny and strange. You got the Clausen, who was once a colleague of yours, right? He used to work at the Post, and now he's working for, for uh, the Citizens, Citizens oh. Committee. Yeah, at the time, Ken Clausen was uh, the Deputy Director but of Communications at the White House. A, here's a marvelous and funny comment, morality. What, uh, he was involved with the Canuck letter, the framed letter that have destroyed allegedly, uh, he allegedly. Yeah, yeah. but he wasn't worried about that so much as a girl reporter he visited a girl reporter's apartment where she has many visitors and that's what was bothering him <laughs> that's, that's, that's laid out in some I detail think that's a very uh, funny scene uh, in, a hilarious in the uh, yeah. conversation in there between yeah. uh, Marilyn Berger the reporter in question uh, and Clausen in which what had happened was that Clausen uh, according to Marilyn Berger had told her that he wrote the Canuck letter. Uh, subsequently, he that denied. You should describe the Canuck letter. Right. It is a letter that supposedly was written to um, a New Hampshire paper just before the, that very crucial primary, alleging that Senator Muskie, then the front runner, had condoned a, race, a racial slur against French Canadians of, of, of Canuck. And it was very celebrated in one of the factors that led to Muskie's mm. crying speech. And Clausen, uh, according to Marilyn Berger, who told us the story, came to her apartment and said, I wrote the Canuck letter. Uh, he subsequently denied and said there must have been some misunderstanding, but uh, when we went with this rather huge story that combined the Segretti operation uh, and the Canuck letter and some other dirty tricks, uh, Clausen seemed much more concerned about the fact that he was in Marilyn Berger's apartment having a drink than uh, anything about the activity itself to the point where at one point he says, Marilyn, don't you understand? I have a wife and a dog and a cat. <laughs> no, what hits me about that is what is morality? You, say, what, you, mean, you know, Gore Vidal's play The Best Man. Our version of morality, the version we have is man, woman, and boudoir. That's immoral. You know? But the idea of knifing people and jipping people you know, it's not amorous. That's what I'm well, talking about. certainly within the Nixon White House, again, getting back to the siege mentality, that uh, anything was considered fair game. That if you, you Sloan describes this rarefied atmosphere yeah. uh, in the book, that, that well, you thought you, you really had the yeah. power and, and almost uh, the responsibility to do anything 
uh, without worrying yeah. too much about the law. Well, in talking about the Canuck letter, Clausen is in later denying that he wrote it, said that he told Maryland, I wish I had written it, right. which, which sort of conveys <laughs> yeah. the whole notion that uh, it, it's a dirty trick that's, that seemed to be a factor in knocking Muskie out, who was really the person that you know, the White House feared. No, one does it effectively, no matter how vile it might be, does it well, but you succeed. You know, I'm a bastard, I admit it. Well, you gotta give me credit. That's I'm how you earn your spurs. Yeah. So we come to more and more as the case is built, you guys are getting it put together more and more. Fear is also, fear is also being compounded, isn't it? The fears now. I think there, there were two levels of fear. Uh, one was uh, our own occasional paranoia, and the other had to do with the fear of losing our credibility and also that, that the White House had the ability to retaliate against the Washington Post. And uh, also, I think it, you're, you're talking about the the, the fear in uh, in the president's inner circle um, among the, even the secretaries and the aides that somehow somebody's going to unravel the sock. And we we now know it's now clear why there had to be a cover up in Watergate because Howard Hunt and Gordon Liddy were engaged in so many things: faking cables, the Ellsberg break-in. Uh, numerous other things that it, that one, if they started talking about, was going to lead the the whole house was going to come down. Another thing, also, the fear that you were feeling. You met because we perhaps even described your meetings with Deep Throat, this man, this person you know. I think you're talking particularly about May seventeenth, nineteen seventy three. When uh, suddenly you realize that somebody might get hurt. I mean, really hurt. Well, killed. Such what happened is that. Bob had a meeting with Deep Throat that night, uh, and he called me at the office and said, come over to my apartment right away. Uh, and I got there, and he put his hand over his lips to indicate silence, and he went and put on a, a record, uh, in this case, a Rachmaninoff concerto. It's got awful taste in music. And <laughs> so turned it up real loud uh, to make sure that if anything was bugged, that, that nothing could be heard, and then he took a piece of paper and wrote a little note to me, and it says, Deep Throat says everyone's life is in danger. And I said, you know, what's going on? Is Deep Throat going a little crazy this time, or what? And Woodward shakes his head, and then he sits down at the typewriter and proceeds to, to do an itemized list of 17 topics that he and Deep Throat discussed that night. Uh, basically, what those topics involved was the whole Watergate cover-up, uh, what we've heard about in the last year, about the president's alleged involvement, uh, the Howard Hunt blackmail scheme, the attempt to blackmail the White House, uh, executive clemency offers to the, some of the now accused conspirators of, of executive clemency. And it turns out that, that 16 of those items uh, on the list have all checked out. And the one that, that we never had any basis for uh, knowing was true was that everyone or anyone's life was in danger. It, it tended to, s to symbolize the, the notion that the stakes were increasing, that now there were serious allegations against the President of the United States, something that we, we had a difficult time dealing with uh, ourselves. I have a question. Did you guys, uh, any moment at that period, feel scared yourselves? Sure. Of, of, of course, that night we felt very scared and actually 
Carl suggested that we've got to unload this information on somebody in a responsible position. So we, we rousted Ben Bradley, our editor, out of bed at 3 a.m. and went over to his house and held a conversation on his front lawn uh, just like because the house we were might afraid. Be because we started inside the house, and Bradley started to read this memo, and he started to discuss it. And, and, I, and I said, don't say anything, and he started to look around the, the living room as if he was you know, yeah. like a stranger in his own house or something. So that was a f that's the, and the next day we met, in fact, with, with the editors and other reporters on the roof garden at the Post because we were afraid the office was bugged. Yeah. So it could be, it could not be true. It might be true. And also paranoia sets in here, too, which is quite justifiable. Well, I don't know. I mean, we, we look back on it sort of, um, we, we were responding in a, in a protective way to mm. our, our own position, whether it was called for or not. I, I just I'm don't know. Just I'm uh, sorry, Mark. No, go ahead. As you were meeting Deep Throat, you have certain, uh, the book, by the way, is very dramatic, and you, uh, it's the reality of the truth, how you met and the arrangements, and the underground garage that you sat there, weren't, you know, there are moments in taking cabs in different places, and he meets you. It sounds as though either you guys might have been knocked off very easily. Well, well there was, I mean, in that case, a, a particular, particularly important to protect the person involved. To protect and his identity. Yeah. I think that's what we were yeah. more concerned about than, yeah. than physical well-being yeah. well, at that point. If, if it's interesting how, what, how we came to write this book, sort of. Uh, in when, as we were writing these stories, we were pretty much convinced uh, in the, the fall of 72 that we got a corner on the White House secret operations, and we had hints that there was, was much more there than we knew, that just the, the Watergate burglary. And that there was a, an organized cover-up occurring. And so we contracted to write a book, sort of a, a Howard Hunt, Gordon Liddy, John Mitchell book, that where they went and what they did, which would be sort of a history. And we actually started to write such a book, uh, three or four chapters. Then McCord's letter charging perjury in a, in a cover-up was released in March of 73. And the, the dam broke. And at that point, it became clear that we were going to have to that to finish this book uh, in the midst of, of this story. We were going to have to concentrate on our role. And, and we wrote the book. And one of the people who really helped us in this is our editor at Simon & Schuster, Alice Mayhew, because we didn't have much time. We were yeah. still working on the story. Yeah. And I'm thinking of uh, a, a very enthusiastic review by Gary Wills, New York Review Books, in which he says, of course you guys were police reporters, crime reporters. You were investigating, in a sense, a mafia. You know? And the language used, you, we, you were kind of shaking when he did the phrase, I'll drop it in the deep six, you know, a deep six, as though it was guys in Chicago and Cicero talking, you know. Yeah, the language, yeah, the uh, language. sometimes was, was really stunning. And, and by language, I don't mean the, the uh, kind of language that we've heard in the in the presidential transcripts, which is to say the expletives, mm. uh, I think Woodward and I use them ourselves, and we do in the book for that matter, but rather the, the, the idea of the president and his closest aides speaking as conspirators. Yeah, this is the part Saying, Joe, we're going to get caught yeah. on this. You better drop it in the river on the way yeah, home. So it's not accidental that two local reporters, in a sense, two metropolitan rather than national reporters, well, I, th I think in a sense that's what the book is yeah. really about. It's about Washington journalism and how it's practiced and how it's not practiced. Uh, John Mitchell, this gets back to, to the sort of the beginning, the point you made at the beginning of the show with the, the learned professor there. Uh, John Mitchell said very early in this administration, watch what we do, not what we say. Uh, well, I think you can see that the Washington press corps, certainly for the better part of four years, concentrated on, on watching what they said, not what they did. And 
And indeed, maybe the press bears a measure of responsibility for uh, the Watergate mentality in the sense that uh, had we watched what was really going on, not what Ron Ziegler said. But perhaps we could end, uh, even though all we're doing here is just touching on, on the book, All the President's Men with Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward. At this, and just this conversation occurs not too long after uh, the righteous indignation of uh, Henry Kissinger on being his veracity being questioned. And I thought immediately, of course, of Peter Sellers and Dr. Strangelove and the, the identical role-playing was fantastic. He'd be great as Sellers, by the way. There's a scene here uh, toward the end. We probably end with this, you know. Woodward is questioning Kissinger. The fact that you're questioning him in itself, you know. Do you want to read that? This is more than a year ago, the very issue that yeah. uh, Kissinger threatened to resign over uh, recently here, and that is the, the wiretaps on his own aides, and we had obtained information from two FBI sources that, in fact, Kissinger was the initiator of this. Uh, it seemed like a relevant story because the wiretaps had just, the existence of them had just been recently disclosed and, and confirmed by the, by the FBI officially, and so I'd called him up to ask him about his role. And it should be noted, I guess, this was in May of 73, and it, it's almost uh, it very, very similar to what's happened in the last 10 days uh, with Dr. Kissinger in the same subject. He called Kissinger, and he was rather incredulous, Bob was, at what he had learned from these two FBI sources. And uh, he said that uh, he reached Dr. Kissinger on the phone, and Kissinger said hello, and Woodward explained that, that the reporters had information from two FBI sources that Kissinger had authorized taps on his own aides. Kissinger paused. It could be Mr. Haldeman who authorized the taps, he said. How about Kissinger, Woodward asked. I don't believe it was true, he stated. Is that a denial? A pause. I frankly don't remember. He might have provided the FBI with the names of individuals who had seen or handled various documents had been, which had been leaked, Kissinger said. It is quite possible that the FBI construed this as an authorization. In possible individual cases, it is possible that I pointed out who handled what document to my deputy, who in turn would have passed on the information to the FBI. Woodward said that two sources had specified that Kissinger had personally authorized the taps. A brief pause. Almost never, Kissinger said. Woodward suggested that almost never meant sometimes. Was Kissinger then confirming the story? Kissinger raised his voice angrily. I don't have to submit to police interrogation about this, he said. Calming down, he went on, if it is possible and if it happened, then I have to take responsibility for it. I'm responsible for this office. Did you do it, Woodward asked. You aren't quoting me, Kissinger asked. Sure he was, Woodward said. What, Kissinger shouted? I'm telling you what I said was for background. And here we should interject, I guess, that background means that, that the official, in this case Kissinger, is not to be quoted by name and it's to appear as if it sort of came out of thin air. Woodward said that they had made no such agreement about background. Quote, I've tried to be honest, now you're going to penalize me, Kissinger said. No penalty intended, Woodward said, but he could not accept retroactive background. In five years in Washington, Kissinger said sharply, I've never been trapped into talking like this. Woodward wondered what kind of treatment Kissinger was accustomed to getting from reporters. And I think that, in a way, is, is really what this story is all about, the kind of treatment that the administration was accustomed to getting from reporters. This is what the book's about, too. And, you know, I, I know that there's so much we can talk about. It's just touched upon this, really, just uh, the book, All the President's Men, dealing with 
an open society. How long will it be open? And it's open now, thanks in no small, in no small degree to the work of investigative journalism, Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward, all the president's men. Thank you very much. Thank you.